Welcome to Quantum Magazine's podcast. Each episode, we bring you stories about developments in science and mathematics. I'm Susan Vallich. It may sound like a strange pairing for research, a tumor biologist teaming up with a geobiologist, someone who studies the interplay between living organisms and the environment. Geobiologist Emma Hammarlund of Lund University in Sweden asked her colleague, tumor biologist Sven Palman, for help. He was skeptical. He didn't think he'd have much to offer in trying to find out why it took so long for animals to burst onto the scene a half billion years ago. But after four years of work, the two have put together an interdisciplinary hypothesis to explain the diversification that forever changed Earth's evolutionary landscape. Marland and Palman's hypothesis first appeared in the January of 2018 issue of Nature, Ecology, and Evolution. Let's set the scene. For most of its four and a half billion year history, Earth has sustained life, sure, but that life was largely limited to microbial organisms like bacteria, plankton, and algae. Not until about 540 million years ago did larger, more complex species begin to dominate the oceans. Within just a few tens of millions of years, which sounds like a lot, but is just a blip on the evolutionary timescale, the planet had filled up with all kinds of animals. The fossil record from that period shows the beginnings of nearly all modern animal lineages. Animals with shells, animals with spines, animals that swam, animals that could hunt, and of course, animals that could defend themselves from predators. Like many biologists, Hamarland wondered why it took so long for complex animals to emerge. And she wondered why, when it finally happened, did it happen so suddenly? One of the leading theories holds that a skyrocketing rise in atmospheric oxygen around that time triggered what's known as the Cambrian Explosion. That's when fossils of complex animals suddenly appeared in the fossil record. Hamarland says it was a dramatic event. Basically, all all animal types you can think of today, so arthropods, mollusks, annelids, like worms, and you even have vertebrates on the scene very, very early on. Earlier, when oxygen was scarce, the simple animals in the seas had anaerobic metabolisms that didn't depend on oxygen. But by shifting to aerobic respiration, animals gained a huge metabolic advantage because the amount of energy that cells could produce per respiration cycle increased nearly 20-fold. That extra energy may have been what powered the greater complexity witnessed during the Cambrian period. The creatures had improvements in their cellular systems, bigger and more complex body structures, and the capacity for energy-intensive movement and predation. University of California Riverside grad student Charles Diamond thinks the story of the animal kingdom is one of learning to take advantage of oxygen as an energy source and also learning how to avoid potential hazards associated with the gas, which can degrade delicate biomolecules. Diamond works with geologist Timothy Lyons, a strong proponent of the oxygen-centered argument. But no one is sure that a big uptick in atmospheric oxygen caused the Cambrian explosion. Many scientists give more weight to alternative theories about the emergence of new genetic capabilities or major shifts in ecological interactions that prompted new, more complex forms to evolve. 
Still, animals in that period would have needed to develop physiological innovations to deal with the abundance of oxygen. Hamarlin had a hunch about how they did it, but to prove it, she needed Sven Palman's help with his expertise in stem cells and cancer. I knew that Sven was working with different states of cells, you know, differentiated cells and stem-like cells. And that I thought also that he was able to push cells back to stem cell-like conditions. I knew he had some information that I needed. So we sat down for many meetings and just tried to dock our different perspectives and questions. And he was curious too, to, even though he didn't really think he had any information that would be valuable for Earth history. But when he started to understand that oxygen was low in general in the Cambrian, he started to become interested. Their hypothesis goes like this. The evolution of the capacity to maintain undifferentiated cells, even when those cells were exposed to higher levels of oxygen, allowed animals to keep stocks of stem cells for tissue growth and repair. That capacity then also made it possible for animals to become more complex and diversify. Stem cells have a pluripotent ability to give rise to other cell types that make up healthy tissues. Hamarland explains. If you have just two differentiated cells that divide in half and become two new cells, they're just eventually going to die off. But if you do have a stem cell that can sort of self-renew itself, I mean, renew, produce one new cell, but maintain its own integrity, then you have like a, you have a mine of cells, you have a source of new cells. Throughout life, these stem cells play a crucial part in the regeneration and repair of tissues. Scientists are still trying to find out what enables stem cells to maintain their pluripotent, undifferentiated state when other cells can't. One factor researchers have identified is oxygen. For cells to stay in their stem states, they need to keep their oxygen levels low. Experiments have shown that exposing stem cells to greater amounts of oxygen usually causes them to abruptly differentiate or specialize into non-stem cells. This observation explains why stem cells are so often sequestered in regions of the body that are hypoxic. Hamarlin says that means oxygen levels are relatively low. So in our bone marrow, for example, that's where we have the biggest battery of stem cells that continuously make us, give us new immune cells or blood cells. But our bone marrow is actually hypoxic. And those stem cells are not going to be stem cells if we put them out on the desk because they don't like high oxygen and they are only immature and sort of residing quietly until we need them if it's low oxygen. But we also have some stem cells that reside in the skin or in the, you know, in the brain or in the retina where we know we have more oxygen, but we actually don't know why those stem cells still are stem cell-like. Cancers have stem cells too, which help drive a tumor's formation and growth, and they thrive even in high oxygen. Palman and Hamarland figured that if they could determine how our bodies and tumors preserve stem cells despite higher oxygen, they might be able to explain how early animals solved their own oxygen problems millions of years ago. So they focused on a family of proteins called hypoxia-inducible factors, or HIFs. In particular, the protein HIF-2A. Its activity is heavily implicated in cancers of the kidneys and the sympathetic nervous system. That includes the neuroblastomas that Palman studies. 
The HIFs help modulate how cells react to different oxygen conditions. When oxygen is low, cells activate HIFs to shift their metabolisms from aerobic to anaerobic and to start other processes that keep the cells alive. When oxygen is high, the HIFs are no longer needed and get degraded. But HIF-2A remains active in some tumors, even during oxygenation. Pullman says that helps the cells act as if they're experiencing hypoxic or low oxygen conditions when they aren't. Pullman says if you look at stem-like neuroblastoma cells, suppressing HIF-2A causes them to differentiate. That suggests the protein is part of what keeps cancer stem cells in an immature state in the presence of oxygen. Hamarland and Pullman have argued that HIF-2A functions similarly in normal animal tissues. They've seen some preliminary evidence of this in the skin and the sympathetic nervous system, but scientists need to conduct more experiments to confirm the idea. Next, Tamarlin set out to unpack how HIFs might have factored into the evolutionary story of the Cambrian explosion. Hamarlin says, imagine you're a blob of ancient animal cells that don't have HIF. It hasn't evolved yet. You would regulate your cells, the differentiation of your cells, just by oxygen gradient within you. You would have the lowest oxygen in the center of yourself, and you would have the higher at the boundary. So you would have your stem cells in the center and you would have your differentiated cells at your boundaries. And that would be fine as long as you live in an environment where the outer oxygen concentration is stable. Because otherwise, as soon as there's a shift in oxygen outside of you, your cells would also change and your gradient of oxygen would also change. And that would be a problem for you as a tissue or as an organism. Because most environments do have oxygen that fluctuates. But if you do have something that is like HIF, you'll be able to survive those fluctuations in oxygen. Because if it changes for a, overnight, for example, and oxygen goes really low overnight, you'd be fine because you would have a switch with the HIF to turn on glycolysis. So sort of going into the low oxygen consumption mode. So Hamarlin started looking at HIF-1A as that potential switch. HIF-1A is the molecule in vertebrates that she and Palman describe as resembling the ancestral HIF form that would have evolved first. It would have allowed emerging animals to be less sensitive to oxygen fluctuations in their environments, which means those organisms could start to manage stem cells better. Their tissues could grow with fewer oxygen-imposed constraints, so they could be made of more diverse cells growing in more varied structures. Plus, the animals could begin to populate more habitats with varying oxygen levels. The Ediacaran creatures disappeared at the start of the Cambrian. Hamarlin wonders whether they lacked this ability and therefore lived in the deep parts of the ocean because oxygen concentrations were more stable there. When HIF-2A entered the picture, it would have given vertebrates even greater flexibility because their tissues could behave as though they were hypoxic regardless of their environment. This would have enabled them to form complex organs from diverse, highly specialized cells without regard for disruptive oxygen exposure. Stem cells could have resided in regions that were completely isolated from the oxygen gradients throughout the rest of a tissue. As support for her theory, Hamarland points to the evolutionary history of HIFs in animals. 
HIF evolved in animals, and it can be found in nearly all animal species. So HIF2 is specific to vertebrates, and in general you can say that vertebrates also have a much better capacity to live long in the oxic environment than invertebrates do. We generally get bigger and we live for a, a hundred years or so, while invertebrates live for weeks or months at most and are generally quite small. Hamarland says invertebrates can't regenerate tissues like vertebrates can. And she thinks invertebrates may not be as good as vertebrates at maintaining viable stem cells in their adult tissues for regeneration. When you finally are able to get into the oxic environment, it's a better metabolism than any other. So it's a gold mine and you need the proper key to be able to get in. Gold mine. And the development of the HIF proteins was that key. It wasn't until HIF and HIF-2A came along that animals could start to use oxygen for more metabolic energy, build more elaborate tissues, and cope better with oxygen damage. And it's probably not the only case because it's just, it's also a matter of what we know but it's a good candidate from what we know today. Hamarlin and Palman hope to uncover other mechanisms as well. But first, they need to test essential components of their HIF hypothesis, primarily the idea that the hypoxia reaction is specifically invoked in normal tissues to maintain stem cells. But cancer researcher Tammy Bishop has doubts. She specializes in hypoxia at the University of Oxford. Bishop says scientists have yet to see HIF-2A highly expressed in oxygen-rich, or oxic, tissues outside of the lab. Plus, when researchers genetically knocked out the protein in mice, the animals experienced health problems, but not to the degree she would expect if their stem cell quality was compromised. Biologist Randall Johnson of the Karolinska Institute in Sweden agrees there are problems with Hamarlin's assumption that HIF-2A's activity in tumors would correspond to what's happening in normal tissues. I'd say they're making jumps that I wouldn't necessarily make, but I think it's perfectly reasonable for them to make, you know, to sort of at least in the spirit of you know, thinking about things to try and make some new connections. Paulman and Hamarlin believe the link between HIF-2A and tumor formation is rooted in the protein's evolutionary role in maintaining the states of stem cells. Hamarlin says maybe cancer is the price that we, as vertebrates, pay for the ability to live well in an oxic environment. Vertebrates develop cancer more often than invertebrates. The HIF keys are kind of Faustian keys. They open the vault to the gold mine, to the golden energy, but it comes with a price that the same key can be hijacked and create tumors. Clinical trials are currently testing whether inhibiting HIF-2A might be effective in treating certain types of cancers. For now, Emma Hamarland and Sven Palman's ideas need to be substantiated by experimental evidence. And to tie them to broader mysteries about the Cambrian explosion, researchers would need to determine whether changes in atmospheric oxygen drove the development of the HIFs, and if so, to what extent. Hamarland says looking at evolution through the oxygen and stem cell lens could open all sorts of new doors. Michelle Yoon helped with this episode. I'm Susan Vallett. For more on this story, read Jordana Sepalowicz's full article, Oxygen and Stem Cells May Have Reshaped Early Complex Animals, on our website, quantamagazine.org. 
And if you're looking for some reading material heading into the new year, the MIT Press has published two quanta books, Alice and Bob Meet the Wall of Fire and The Prime Number Conspiracy. Order them now at Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, or your local bookstore.